Welcome and thank you for joining us on Real Insider News, where you get behind-the-scene updates directly from the people behind the film and TV production industry. I'm Brandon Hamill. And I'm Jeff Hamill. Today we'll be discussing the heartbreaking death of Chadwick Boseman, catching up on Mulan's release, and discussing wastes in the film and television industry. And then we'll catch up with gaffer Jeff Dan from Atlanta, Georgia, and talk to him about working in the new normal. Stay tuned. Today's news segment is brought to you by ATM Services of Massachusetts, providing your customers access to cash that will increase impulse spending in cash purchases. Save your business from those hefty credit card fees with your own ATM. For more info, call or text Nick at 978-877-9801 or email nick.atmservices at gmail.com. So Brandon, let's get the listeners caught up on some news. While I'm sure everyone is aware of the death of Chadwick Boseman, we didn't want to overlook the death of an actor whose career shook the world with the role of King T'Challa in Black Panther. And let's not forget his roles in Get On Up and 42, films where he faithfully embodied Jackie Robinson and James Brown, two of America's most famous black figures, before donning his cape in the world-famous Black Panther. And not not only did he play T'Challa in three of the largest films of the past decade, including Infinity War and Avengers Endgame, He also did it while battling cancer. At 43, his career was cut much too short, but his love for the craft was evident by how much he soldiered on in the face of his deteriorating health, and now he has left a mark on the world we will certainly have trouble forgetting. I I really just can't get over the fact that Chadwick Boseman comes out uh, in the past decade, really makes a name for himself with 42, and then plays in Black Panther, Infinity War, and Endgame, as well as Spike Lee's most recent film, The Five Bloods, while battling cancer since 2016. Yeah, I mean, outside of his family, there was only a small group of insiders, uh, apparently, that was aware that he was battling cancer. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly came to a shock to me. I remember when I read the update that he had died, I thought it was fake. I thought it was a scam article, but then I double-checked it, and lo and behold... He's, he truly had passed. Now, I don't know, you know, I don't know what treatments he was taking. I mean, obviously, there's there's uh, typically or, you know, some kind of chemo. And, you know, chemo typically knocks the crap out of you, you know, for a, for days, maybe even a week. Depends on, you know, I guess how much you're, you're getting and how often. But it really does a number on your on your system and, and you don't have any energy. You don't I can't imagine having chemo. And the first thing I want to do is go be an actor in a movie. Yeah, especially blockbuster films where you have fight scenes and, you know, you're going to all these grand sets and jumping around. And I mean, a lot of that is special effects, but, you know, you still have to be doing a good amount of that. And I believe it was his wife said in a press release that he was uh, acting in between surgeries and chemotherapy. So... He hit it well, I guess. Yeah, and these aren't these aren't walk-ons or, or bit parts or or um, extras. I mean, <laughs> no, no. I mean, he was a star in the world's biggest movie franchise, and it's a shame because it seemed like the way things were shaping up that he and Tom Holland were going to kind of become the next Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. in his next phase of Marvel since they had stepped down after Endgame. But it's it's unbelievable that. 
we lost him at 43, especially since it was looking like his career was just beginning. Yeah, and of course, you know, to get to the, the business end of it, um, you know, Disney's grappling with how to proceed on the Black Panther without him. I mean, how, how do you write that into the story? Like, if, if Black, Black Panther is, is, you know, that invincible, and how I do don't you, know. And how do you replace him? Yeah, I feel like it's... I think it would be disrespectful just to say that he died off screen or whatever. So I guess they're just going to have to write in an excuse for him not to show up or to be replaced by one of the other characters from his film. Uh, I don't know. That's a really tough spot to be put in, especially since they haven't had to deal with something like this before. Well, but I mean, you know, in the past, you know, honestly, they have done it with Superman and Batman and some of the other. I mean, look how many people played Batman in the last uh, several movies. So, I don't know. I mean... Disney kind of had the perfect storm with Carrie Fisher because they had enough footage of her, I suppose, for the last Star Wars movie to give her a send-off, however awkward it may have been. However, I doubt they have anything prepared for the likes of Chadwick Boseman's character disappearing in the Marvel franchise. So, I'm really intrigued by how they will deal with this, especially because I think that rendering a CG model of Chadwick Boseman would probably be seen as disrespectful as a way of kind of animating his body past death. So I doubt they're going to do something like that. Yeah, it, it's definitely going to be a challenge for them to get a, get around that somehow. Or, I mean, it's also a shame to have to get around that. Yeah, an actor who not only shook the world with his role as a superhero, but also showed showed his chops while, like I said, playing Jackie Robinson and James Brown, two roles that, you know, they, that's a that's a hefty calling to play not only Jackie Robinson or James Brown, but both of them, and to do well in both roles. So, you know, the man was a great actor, regardless of whether or not he was battling cancer at the time. So I got to say that, you know, it's with a heavy heart that we say goodbye to Chadwick Boseman, but we want to... All the fans around the world want to thank him for his hard work and going on and shouldering through the process despite suffering more than I could ever imagine while filming a f making a film. Well, and let's not forget, aside from being treated and acting, he was visiting children with cancer. Yeah, I'm sure that meant something to him. Oh, I'm sure it meant a lot to him, but boy, I mean, talking about going above and beyond... You know, not just being uh, a famous face on the screen. He was actually out visiting children who had cancer. That's, uh, I think that's, you know, the human story. Well, it's easy to, it's easy to forget how, like, I, I feel like uh, a, a big purpose of our show is to show the people behind the industry. And I think with big stars like that, it's easy to forget the fact that they are human. And they're not just images on the screen. And sometimes life gives us little smacks in the face to remind us that, you know, we got to be grateful for the actors we have when we have them because they're not guaranteed. Well, let's not let's not put them all on a pedestal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I'm talking about. I do. I, I understand. <laughs> um, I guess not in less somber news, but in different news, we have a bit of a Mulan update for everyone. While the film Mulan did not get the booming theatrical release Disney may have wanted, it has since had its video-on-demand release and is now available to rent as we speak. However, Disney is not being as open about their earnings as DreamWorks was with their release of Trolls 2. 
Previous live-action remakes have made incredible amounts of money for the megacorporation, even reaching into the billions with the Lion King remake. However, Disney has only given vague notions about the fiscal success of their newest release, saying they are happy with what they see. So, what do you think this means for the future of Disney releases? Do you think we're going to see more Disney films being released onto Video On Demand, or do you think they're going to try to stick with theatrical releases, since they might not actually be happy with the response to Mulan? Well, I think it it may be uh, a matter of determining different markets to release it on in theater, different markets to release it on video, perhaps even different markets for streaming it. So I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all anymore. I think there's lots of analytics they can look at and decide how to best utilize the, 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 the different audiences to maximize profit. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, they still have the Mandalorian season two coming out soon, which is going to be a streaming exclusive, which is their one of their their first live action Star Wars show. Um, so they're definitely going to continue making products for their streaming service. I'm just wondering if we're going to see more big time releases, maybe simultaneous with theater, theatrical releases when all that stuff comes back to full swing. However, I'm doubtful that they're going to going to stray from previous norms. They're probably going to, you know, reset back to theatrical releases since that seems to be where all the money is made, at least for Disney, that is. Well, that may be true. So there's another way that they can do this. This landmark cinemas and the Independent Cinema Alliance um, intend to use cloud-based movie delivery. Huh, okay. So it's cloud-based an LA-based movie delivery. LA-based company on Thursday announced partnership with Landmark Cinemas. That's Canada's second largest circuit with 44 locations and 325 screens. And the Independent Cinema Alliance, which has 140 member, members um, of independent cinemas operating 400 theaters and 2,600 screens in the U.S. and Canada. So, you know, that's another route that they could take. They're, you know, that way they're almost getting the best of both worlds. It's essentially being streamed via the cloud to theaters. So I guess that's a, you know, that's a pivot where, uh, I mean, we talked about this before with the, the param the Paramount consent, de- um, decrees, uh, decrees. And, uh, you know, this might be a game changer, even though Netflix is saying right now they won't buy a theater chain. Um, but who knows? Disney might say Disney might buy that, cloud service <laughs> and just do that to the theaters yeah and i imagine that cloud service is going to be more affordable than 30 dollar rentals they'd probably charge about as much as you would for a ticket price maybe even less but i'm wondering if mulan's steep rental price may have contributed to hypothetically it getting less revenue than they may have projected well it's the 80 20 rule right if you can get 80% of the people to watch it for more money, you don't need the other 20%. Yeah, that's fair. So, I mean, you know, the thing about the landmark cinema and independent cinema being the cloud, you know, doing a cloud service is what the limiting factor is what they have for bandwidth in these different theaters, available to these different theaters. Right. Rather but, than seating potential, which is definitely stripped due to COVID. Yeah, I mean they're talking about drive-ins as well. Huh. So, you know, any 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 place that has a screen, basically, they could tap into the cloud. I'm, I don't know how it's going to work. A subscription? Uh, now, I'm would not this sure. be a simultaneous stream, or would this be video on demand, like we have with Netflix and Disney Plus? I believe 
It's to support all out-of-home venues, including cinemas and drive-ins, to deliver movies, trailers, advertising, live events, and programming, even concerts. Hmm. So it sounds to me, I mean, who knows if this is just, uh, you know, a media blast with not a lot of fact, you know, a lot of marketing, but it sounds to me like you could stream different you can stream the same movie in the same building on different screens or, right. you know, any way you want to break it up. Now, I'm not really sure how that content is delivered and how it's disseminated amongst in-house screens or theaters in general. But it's a pretty – It's a. I would say it's interesting, but I, I think also long overdue in that I don't know why in, – in, unless I'm missing some part of the technology – that was just recently, you know, developed or assembled. Why this hadn't been done before? Well, I mean, a lot of the stuff that's happening in COVID, like people working from home, was perfectly viable before. People just didn't see any reason to do so. So I think that we're going to get a lot of trends that are going to stick with us, like maybe the streaming service or films being more readily available outside of theaters, uh, you know, on release because of people's willingness to try these things during the pandemic. Well, that's probably why we have some listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, another reason Mulan's income might have been affected is due to some drama that's been surrounding the film. Oh, boy. So while you, the United States and Chinese relations have been amicable over these you know, past few decades, there's always been a bit of tension, and there always will be between any two given powers. The case of the film Mulan, being a Chinese and American co-production, has been no exception. To start off, the lead actress, and I just want to say I'm probably going to butcher these Chinese pronunciations, because I only speak English, I know that's my fault, and I apologize in advance, so let me say again. To start off, the lead actress, Yifei Liu, um, Liu was criticized last year for supporting the Hong Kong police as they brutalized pro-democratic protesters. For obvious reasons, many fans saw problems with the lead actress carrying the sentiment and banded together to boycott the film. So, that's one standpoint in which people may want to avoid the film and may have withheld their purchasing power. One problem. However, as the film came out, another one erupted. While the film was mostly shot in New Zealand, Mulan was also shot in about 20 locations around China including the Xinjiang province, which is also the site of China's internment camps. For those of you who are unaware, the Uyghur Muslims are a minority of Muslims in China who are currently being sentenced to re-education facilities due to their refusal to shed their religion. This, of course, sparked even further outrage since the film's credits thanked the Xixiang Public Security Bureau, which is the institution chiefly in charge of running these camps. So, while it is alluring to have the world's two superpowers unite in order to make media, this is a great example of how cultures can clash and how corporations can often feel the backlash of it. Because some people have been considering this to be supporting human rights violations, which is definitely something Disney doesn't want to be associated with. Well, I mean, the part about, uh, you know, currently sentenced to education facilities, uh, we have that here. Well, it's more like uh, 
started on what, the reservations. Right. What we did, what we did with the Native Americans, um, which is not great and happening now. And, and most people don't hear about it because China is very particular about how they monitor the information that enters and leaves their country. You mean they so, control the media? <laughs> they, uh, they're definitely more protective of it than we are used to. And while the Chinese populace might be accepting of that, I'm sure that might come to a shock uh, to many Americans. So there's definitely dangerous waters to tread while you're thanking institutions such as the Xinjiang, uh, uh, hold on one second, the Xinjiang Public Security Bureau at the end of your movie's credits. Yeah, uh, it could it could be. I mean, I don't know, you know, moviegoers sort of overlook that kind of thing if it's a good movie. Uh, I'm not saying it's right, and I'm not saying that's going to happen, but, you know, that might add to the curiosity of, well, now i got to see the movie. I want to see what they shot in the in the camps and you know whatever i mean i don't know it's well it's not that they shot in the camps they were just in that province where those camps are located so that's the main problem there but i see what you're saying yeah the controversy could attract attention the saying all all press is good press could string ring through but uh i'm not sure that will always be the case especially nowadays when uh, controversy like this is spotted and able to be honed in on by millions through social media. It could provide a lot more problems with the corporation. And Disney has come out and said that they have had issues due to their relationship with this particularly pro- particular province in China due to fan reactions. Yeah, uh, definitely, it definitely could backfire. And I'm assuming that Disney, especially, is going to look to do more co-productions with China, since I understand that China has a budding uh, film industry that they've been trying to stimulate for many years now. So while we've had directors before, like Michael Bay with the Transformers films work with them, I'm sure that this isn't a trend that's going to die away. So I wonder how future projects will handle controversial topics such as this, since there are undoubtedly going to be some due to our many cultural differences between the two countries. Well, that's a good segue into systematic changes needed in the film industry. So it's not only needed on that level, uh, it's also needed on uh, reducing the amount of waste that a movie production creates. Now, apparently the research that analyzed 19 productions with budgets in the excess of 70 million shot in the UK and US over the past five years, found that transport had the greatest impact regarding carbon emissions, which makes sense. Accounting for almost 50%. Of that, 50, 30% is associated with air travel, and then 70% of that is land travel. So this is interesting because, well, of course, most people are aware that as a society and into planet, we need to reduce our waste. I never really thought about how much a film's production would impact that. And I mean, even the concept of talent and crew coming from various homes and locations is enough to generate tons of greenhouse gas emissions. Well, that may be true, but one thing you get to look at, those planes are flying anyway. They are. So I don't know how that translates directly to the film industry because that plane is going whether the star or crew is on that plane uh i mean unless they're saying that's all private 
jets. Which... I'm sure that plenty of our film stars are using some sort of private jet, and corporations are probably doing the same. But also, even if you think about it on a smaller scale, like how many times you've seen someone from L.A. get flown out just for one person to come to Boston to do a shoot while you have the rest of the crew driving from an hour, an hour and a half away, maybe from Rhode Island to, you know, the, to Central Mass um, for, for, you know, maybe a six-day shoot. I mean, just think about the amount of greenhouse gas that is created from just that alone. And then when you go to even larger film productions that are doing that for months, uh, yeah, that, that definitely is significant. I mean, it's always amazed me, um, even on commercials, how much waste there is at the end of the job. I mean, every day, but it's mostly noticeable, you know, at the end of the job when you tear out a big set or whatever the case may be, there's always plenty of wood products, plastics, garbage. Um, some of it might be, you know, even plants, which that's not quite a, quite as a big deal if, if it's, you know, if it's compost or whatever. I mean, I'm not sure what, where the stuff all goes, as far as I know, it all goes in the dumpster. And what happens when the dumpster is is emptied is I, I don't know. But there is a lot of waste, and you could probably build after a, a decent sized movie. You could probably build a pretty nice house. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Um, our industry is fairly vapid in, in many senses, but in that one as well. I mean, everything we do is temporary. We set up, we break down, and I imagine with that breakdown, not everything's reusable. That's true. Now, I don't know for sure, but I know uh, for three or four years in a row, there was a TV series. It's still on. And at the end of the season, I would be the lighting director on, you know, if you would, the award show part of it, where they would announce the winner for the season. And the last three episodes, I think, we had... They had built a pretty elaborate set. Um, I had heard, you know, three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars to build the set. And as far as I know, they're actually still storing it, paying for storage, even though we haven't used it in two, almost three years now. Wow. So, you know, I guess I don't know what the, what, what the reasoning behind that was. I'm I'm not sure it was, you know, because they didn't want to generate any waste. They probably thought, well, it, m- it might be cheaper for X amount of years to store it if we decide to do it again than to have it built again. Um, you know, the expense of storing that stuff, that's why many movies don't. I mean, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a streaming show that's going to go season after season after season, then certain sets they will just keep. Or like built. a talk show. Well, even a talk show, but, you know, there's some, there's some shows that are going, you know, they might they might be a pilot the first year and then they get picked up and they make it picked up for several years. Certain sets for main characters, you know, if you would, if there's a house involved for a main character or something like that, um, you know, that they may keep on a soundstage built. And they might shift around the looks of others, other sets. But, you know, it's pretty difficult when you have to build, when you have to build a structure... Uh, such as, uh, you know, a, a frame up a house so you can, so it has some realism to it or whatever. I mean, you have to do it safely. It has to be built in most states to code. Now, whether anybody comes and inspects it or not, I don't know, but you certainly can't have the structure falling down on, 
you know, Tom Cruise <laughs> or, who, or whoever it is. So they're well built. I mean, these, you know, the guys that do the construction of the movies know what they're doing. They, they, they build well. And, uh, but as you know, you know, if you're using, well, maybe you don't know, if you're using, um, fasteners that have the adhesive built in, you know, that, that, that contact that it makes is, is pretty strong. I mean, it's not, a lot of them might be screws, but it, most of the lumber is not designed where you can keep using it. Right. You know, there's str- stresses put on it and there's, you know, it splits and whatever. So it's not like you could endlessly use that same material. We're not working with Legos here. It is not Legos. <laughs> so to, to some extent, some of that can't be helped, but, you know, maybe some of it can be repurposed. And whether that's repurposed to, you know, for helping out local uh, veterans' homes or um, the thing Jimmy Carter does, uh, Habitat for Humanity type stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, that's not a call that I would be making. And I don't know if it would be cost effective to have somebody inspecting every 2x4 and 2x6 as it comes off the show, you know, put it in the good pile get rid of that i mean I, I don't know but it certainly seems like there could be some reduction in waste from carbon to plastic to just trash yeah and i mean as time goes on we're gonna have to reckon with this more and more and i'm sure that this is going to become a bigger issue um in the future in the near future maybe the next 20 years corporations well, think- are gonna have to be faced with how they're gonna deal with all of this waste if there's as much as you're saying and i think I, you know, from what I've seen with my own experience, the pandemic has actually created more waste. Yeah, of course. There's more cleaning products being used for one. Masks, well, one and, PPE. And more items are disposable. Uh, you know, you're afraid to get COVID, so you're not going to reuse whatever that is. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, maybe this isn't the time to be uh, doing it, but it certainly would be the time to start looking into it. Well, well, we've covered a pretty wide array of news topics here to kind of catch you guys up after our tiny absence. Let's go into even more of it as we catch up with Jeff Dan on the Georgia scene. Stay tuned. And we are glad to welcome back Mr. Jeff Dan onto the show. Hey, Jeff, how are you? I'm well, thank you very much. Hey, great to see you, buddy. Uh, so the last time we spoke, this whole you know COVID pandemic thing was sort of shutting down all production across the country and possibly across the world. Uh, since then, can you tell us a little bit about what's been going on in Georgia? From what I understand, some productions have started up. Uh, yeah, a number of productions have started up because at the moment, I don't believe there is yet an official agreement between the Producers Association and the unions and guilds. Uh, each show is doing it a little bit differently. There's no official guidance still about what the protocols need to be. Um, so, for instance, uh, the show that I'm working on, uh, we had to be tested twice in the same week. Uh, and to be uh, negative for COVID before we could start work the following week. Uh, and now we are tested weekly. And uh, during production, of course, we all, uh, we're not actually in production yet. We're still in prep, but 
we're all wearing masks. We're all wearing, you know, face shields and or eye goggles. We're all, so, you know, to the extent we can, social distancing. Um, uh, they are not allowing people to leave during lunch. Uh, so you have to have your, you know, either bring your food with you or have it delivered. Um, and um, so that's, those are the, you know, basic parameters around that job. There's another job I'm aware of in town right now that is putting up all their crew in a hotel. Uh, so you go from the hotel to the set and back every day with the whole crew. Uh, and I'm not on that job, so it's hard for me to tell how that's going. Um, but, you know, in talking to people who had were about to start it, it's, you can imagine some challenges with that. But I'm not sure exactly how strict they're being. Um, I have also talked to another job before I started the current one that, you know, apart from the usual uh, social distancing and masking and so on, uh, have made it explicit that they're going to be watching people's social media accounts to make sure that there aren't, you know, you're not posting pictures of yourself out at a club or at a major or at a, you know, large gathering or at a, you know, and they've been, you know, 100% clear. It was not, uh, it was not behind closed doors. It was not whispered about. It was like, you know, in the bold print, we will be looking at your private activity if we don't feel like you're being appropriate. Uh, you know, it's cause for uh, discipline. So, uh, you know. so is there sort of a morality clause or a morality understanding? Yeah, I mean, like I said, not not necessarily on the job that I'm working on currently, but that's definitely seems to be the way some uh, one particular show is handling it. Uh, uh, morality clause may not be how I would put it, but yeah, sure, for lack of a better. <laughs> well, we you know we've seen that some people have different definitions of what social distancing and PPE and all that really means. So uh, I respect the fact that they're forward about it, and I don't really blame them for doing that. No, and, and yeah, I mean you'd much rather have them be upfront about it, and they're like I said, they're not hiding it. They're uh, it, truthfully, if you. And so let me rewind a little bit. Um, we've gotten notification from our local uh, that basically says, you know, if a production requires PPE of whatever kind, you know, whatever they're requiring, uh, and you don't feel you want to wear it, uh, you are not required to be on that job. Like the union will not back you up on that one. <laughs> no. it is a, wearing the PPE the production wants is a condition of employment. And, uh, and that seems perfectly reasonable. I mean, in the same way that, Again, I think we talked about this last time uh, in the same way that I wouldn't send a guy up in a lift without a harness. Like that's, you know, and if the guy goes, well, I don't really need it. I go, no, I don't care whether you feel like you need it or not. Put the harness on. Get in the lift. Or, or don't get up. Don't go up. Right, or don't go up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so last time we spent a lot of time talking about hypothetical COVID guidelines. So can you go into a bit of the COVID guidelines you've been working with, things that you might not have expected or things that you think are working really well uh in the in the work environment sure uh so i would say that uh you know predictably we're all wearing masks uh on right. the job that i'm currently on uh you have the option of safety glasses or a face shield so you can you know either way um and there are zones so there's uh you know zone a b and c and they'd like the zones not to mix to the point where if one, you know, there was a group of executives who came through our show and um, and we were working on stage and we were asked to, you know, please go be elsewhere while they, you know, 
look at what they need to look at and we'll call you back in when we're ready. And uh, so in that, you know, normally in that circumstance, you might be working quietly or working away from where the meeting was happening. Uh, but there was, you know, it was a very clear kind of guys go take five, you know, we'll call you when we're ready, when you can come back to work. So it's, and we're still right now in a pre-production scenario. We're still lighting, we're pre-lighting, we're, you know, it's rigging. Uh, so it's a little unclear how that's going to work in, in production, but, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. It sounds like then similar to the producers guild of America that released that 57 page document on what they expect uh, uh, on on production, you know, the different zones and the PPE. And what they put in there is per SAG-AFTRA, there's only four accepted methods of collection of COVID testing, if you would. So they have the five-inch swab where they scratch the back of your brain. They have the nasal swab. They have the throat swab test and then the spit test. And then they only accept the testing kits provided by three manufacturers. Or I don't know if it's manufacturers. I know one of them. Abbott's definitely a manufacturer. Helix and Bosch. And they list the specific tests. So you said you're being tested three times a week. What? No, 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 no. Sorry, let me, let me clarify if I was not clear about that. Uh, I have been tested three times, but like I see. before I started work... We had to be tested twice in the same week to be allowed onto the lot. Okay, I believe you said that. And and oh now we are being tested weekly, uh, so once a week, um, as you know, going forward. I think when production starts in full, there may be more testing for the people who are in zone one, the onset people. Um, but I'm not, I'm not clear about that. I don't. I, that would be speculation on my part. But which type of test are they having you do? The nasal swabbing? Uh, the regular, the traditional nasal swab, yeah. Uh, I did do the spit test for a commercial a couple of weeks ago uh, where I ended up working one day on a commercial. Um, and we did the same thing. We came in the week before. We did the spit test. You know, that one, can I just say, requires a lot of spit. <laughs> but a, but a, week, a week before doesn't seem... Well, I don't know if it was a week before. It was the previous week. So it was a Thursday or Friday, and we were going to start work on Tuesday or something. So it was, you know. You still had time to go out and catch it on the weekend. I suppose. <laughs> um, so you you had to do that for the one day you appeared on that commercial. Yes. And then you were tested twice for the more regular job you've been doing. Correct. Are they going to re-up the tests on a regular interval or after you test positive, I mean, F negative, excuse me, um, do they just kind of take that until you show symptoms? No, no. So, the, like, I, sorry, again, sorry if I was not clear. We are testing weekly. Weekly? Oh, I'm sorry. Test to get, there was a test to get allowed, you know, allowed to come to work at all. Right. And then every week they test us once a week uh, and they've got a whole system. It's actually pretty well laid out. So they've broken up it, broken it up by department. And uh, by day, so, you know, our department tests on Mondays and some other, you know, transpo tests on Tuesdays or whatever. You know, I don't know exactly what days other departments test. But the the point is that they've done a really good job, in my estimation so far, of spreading it out so that there's not lines. There's, you know, a couple of three people around, at, you know, at the testing site, um, out in front of the stage. Uh, there's three little stations uh, that is a you know a station every morning when we come into work we get a temperature check 
and there's a brief uh, health questionnaire. You know, do you have symptoms? Have you come into contact with anybody who has symptoms? Have you come into contact with any, you know, the usual sort of uh, array of questions? Um, yes. And we do that every morning. Temperature check and a, a questionnaire. Uh, so there's that station. There's a station where you can go and get PPE before you go in the building if you need a new face mask or a new face shield or uh, gloves in our case are optional, but the gloves are available. If you want to wear gloves, there's gloves to be had. Um, and there's the third station there is the testing station where it's by appointment. So every department has a day and a time block. If you're in, you know, X department, you come in Wednesday between one and two. Like if you're in, you know, so you're being tested on site. Is there a nurse or like a COVID officer administering those tests? Or how's that going? There is an official COVID officer in charge of the whole scheme of things. Mm. Uh, and there are, um, there are people dressed like nurses who are taking our tests. I have no idea what their <laughs> actual medical background is. <laughs> uh, they got scary. the appearance. Uh, they do. I mean, like, you know, they, uh, they, I assume they're nurses. They right. may be technicians of some kind, uh, medical technicians. I don't know. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't interview them. That's not much. Like, uh, they appear to be nurses. Uh, so in terms of cleaning the set, what is the protocol for that? Is it cleaned regularly? I know at one point in Chicago, they had hourly cleanings of the set in which the screw had to walk off and everything had to be sterilized. So... How's that going? How are the lights being sterilized, if at all? What's what's on the kind of like sanitation side of things in terms of trying to keep everyone safe? Uh, so again, this is still a slightly new experience for me. Um, but the there are a couple of ways they're doing it. Uh, so there's like I was telling Jeff earlier, there's a friend of mine who runs a rental house, and they have made a UV oven so that if you want your the gear that you're receiving to be sterilized. They put your gear in the, you know, it's got 360 uh, UVC lights, and it, they bake your gear for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes or whatever. So that's if you're going to their shop to receive a rental. So this is, a, you know, it's a biggish oven, we'll call it, for lack of a better term. It's, you know, maybe four feet by four feet by eight feet. So you could fit almost anything in there. Um, a corner wood. I see the, okay. <laughs> uh, I see the... Uh, Shop technicians there uh, decontaminating, for lack of a better word, sterilizing gear, you know, on the regular if I'm there getting equipment for whatever. Um, as to on set, the sets that we're working on, the interior parts of the sets have been cordoned off, uh, you know, with caution tape and with some in some cases with actual physical barriers that says that set deck has been through and they have sterilize the space they have some foggers uh that they use with the uh, you know antibacterial or antiviral fog i don't know what's in that stuff but i presume that it <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminds me of the old smoke cookies right well so they have a, a fogger and they go through the they go through the set with a fogger and they fog the set with um you know antibacterial fog i guess i don't know what's in there this is fascinating. The the UV oven and the foggers, I had never conceived. Well, the UV light, I know, sterilizes equipment, but a, a kind of like makeshift oven to do that, that's really adaptive for those warehouses. So good on them for coming up with that. Uh, the foggers, though, so like just misting everything with a disinfectant spray. Now yeah, I know so they where. They mist everything the... with disinfectant, and yeah. they, um, 
and then they'll seal the set and basically, you know, they put somebody's there's a person in charge in the set deck team of of fogging. So if you have to go in for whatever reason, you call the guy and you say, Hey, I gotta go in there to do my work. So when I leave, if you want to seal it back up and fog it again or whatever, uh, they've been pretty responsive. I mean, there's a guy whose job is to chase people around and decontaminate, I guess, for lack of a better word. Sure. Uh, and lots of stuff. I mean, you know, the, the sets we've been on, they've been pretty good about. So not only do they decontaminate stuff, but they cover it so that you can't, if you're in there, if I'm in there working as a lighting technician, I can't be touching all the props that are out. I can't, you know. They're covered with plastic. Um, so you haven't experienced any UVC lights actually on set? No. Not that I... No, only in this oven thing. I mean, I believe... That, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that UVC light is not particularly good for humans. That is... Well, <laughs> yes. Uh, I, yes, that is correct. However, Columbia University has done a white paper, and they have confirmed... Except they do claim they have a wa- wavelength which is safe for humans. They call it far out to light C. Oh. It's a, at a wavelength which is safe for, for humans, and it kills more than 99.9% of the coronaviruses. So, not just any UVC. I don't know what the difference is off the top of my head or, you know, between UVC and far ultra, ultraviolet C. I That's above know. my pay grade. But... It looks like they are working because that was the big concern. You know, a lot of hotels uh, were getting the little robots that would go around each room and it looked like sort of, well, this is before Brandon's time, but lost in space robot, you know, we could, so the, the top would come up and then 360 light and it would, like you said, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, you know, move on. Um, but the rooms had to be empty. Right. You know. I have seen uh, a couple of devices that are air circulators. And I that are so you could obviously install UVC lights in your air handlers if you were in a building or whatever. That's the thing that exists. Yes. But I've seen portables, not the right word, but uh, smaller versions of that in a couple of places now um, that are like an over the door sort of a, a fan, like a what do you call the squirrel cage fan assembly that has a big UV light inside it. So it's taking air and it's moving it through the UV light. And expelling it out the other side, and uh, I don't know if those are useful or not, but they're they've shown up on a co- in a couple of production offices, and they're you know <laughs> sounds like a modified light uh, bug zapper, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of uh, it's heartening to hear about this stuff because everything's been so dim and dark on this show so far. But to hear about what people are actually doing to combat it, it's great to hear that there are technologies being implemented regularly on sets that are changing how. Um, you know, ch- changing how we operate and how we deal with the the new threat of COVID. Um, yeah, I mean, so far it seems to be like I mean, you no know, people in I think our people in our business in in large part take it seriously and are doing whatever they can to uh, mitigate the risk. Um, in terms of departments, obviously you probably have to work pretty closely with the camera department and the grip department. How are those interactions governed? And what department? What departments are you even able to interact with? Like, do you do you just have complete separation from talent and maybe like Video Village? How's that working out? Well, because um, you mentioned the zones earlier, so I did. So here's what, an interesting thing: um, the 
and, and again, I don't want to. This is a little bit speculative, but what I'm hearing when we because we're not actually in production yet, we're still right. in pre-production. In pre-production, uh, what I'm hearing the plan is going to be is that we will go into set, uh, we will light the set with stand-ins, like we normally would in the old days. <laughs> <laughs> the good old days. Exactly. Um, and then the deal is that everybody will leave uh, and that there will be, like, basically, there will be allowed to be one representative from each department allowed on the set. I see. So that a you know a one grip you know the camera operator will obviously be there, a one grip one electric, maybe a set deck person, maybe a props person. I don't know you know depending on how uh, intense the particular scene is. Um, but the point is that they're trying to minimize the number of bodies that are on the set when the talent come to come to the set. Um, so, and again because we haven't done it yet, I'm not sure exactly mechanically how that's going to work. And in truth, most of the time, there's not, you know, that many people on set anyhow when actual, you know, when when first team is in there working. Right. Backed away, we're, you know, around a corner, we're over at staging, we're not usually, you know, right there on the set. So that's not, it's not clear to me exactly how it's going to work, but I think the idea is to minimize the number of people who are close to uh, first unit talent or first team talent who have to be unmasked and you know unprotected is has there been any talk about you know these studios and stages modifying their ventilation systems uh i have heard of uh, a couple of major studios here that are adding uv light to their um to the air handling uh at least two of at least two that i know of i mean i haven't been there in person and seen it but at least two major studios here that i'm aware of are including uh uvc light in their air handling um there may be others i'm just not dialed into every single stage here in town yeah so obviously that helps with the air it doesn't help with the high touch surfaces that's where the fogger comes in um but it does solve the fact that you know standard uvc if it's not the fire ultraviolet is dangerous to human beings <laughs> so if it's in your air handler Chances are it's sealed up and it's not going to affect the people on set. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, uh, it's uh, because I'm not a medical doctor. I don't know how long air, air particles have to be in the presence of the light for it to be useful. I don't know. I mean, a lot of these air handlers move a ton of air very fast. You know, so, uh, I don't know. Also, a lot of the studios have variable speed fans. Because they can be quieted without being, you know, you can turn down the volume without turning it completely off, which allows you to have some air con- air handling, air conditioning, uh, without, you know, without it being an on-off situation. So maybe if you turn it down some, the UVC light is better or more effective, I should say. But again, I'm not. It's just me thinking out loud. I'm not. <laughs> so. Um... With the zones and you having to be called offset several times a day for whatever to happen, do you have a designated waiting area you have to go to, or are you just basically cast outside of the studio? Uh, then... I, I believe that there will be a designated area for a crew to be when they're not on set, uh, when we're in, you know, like I said, when we're in production. But again, this is a little bit hypothetical because I haven't actually been in production yet. We've All I've had so far is pre-lighting and rigging. Um, but I, I understand that the plan is for there to be a place for 
crew to retreat away to. Uh, but I don't know how they're going to manage that exactly because there still has to be social distancing, etc. Um, so it's going to have to be a biggish place wherever it is. <laughs> right. Just to spread people out. So I, the, the real answer is I don't know, but I, yes, I think so. So with the, you know, basically the, the, the full amount of PPE and COVID require COVID guideline stuff being active on set, you working in that environment, being cautious of this, how, how efficient do you think it is? Like how much extra time do you think each day is taking compared to a pre COVID timeline or pre COVID job? Do you think it's getting pretty close or do you definitely think it's like, you know, twice as long to just get anything done? No, it's definitely slower. Um, I don't know that it's twice as long. That seems a little like a, that. But again, but it seems like we're maybe 20 percent, 20 to 30 percent longer. OK, yeah, that's a pretty good estimate. You know, at a guess, I mean, it's, it is challenging to do things. Some as an example, there's an equipment rental house I know here um, who is said, you know, if you're, for instance, we're returning gear because right now we're in a stage. Uh, let me rewind and set the stage a little bit. We are in a sure. place with our job and many others that quit, you know, mostly, you know, in the middle of production somehow. So now we have to return all this gear back to the rental houses. Uh, there's one prominent rental house that I'm aware of where they basically have done a couple things. Uh, you have to make an appointment. You can't just show up like you could in the old days. Uh, you know, you have to reserve a dock space, reserve a, a bay of, uh, you know, to return your gear into. Um, and so you make your appointment. You come up, and the the bay is yours. The crew, your your crew, can come and unload your truck and put your gear on the floor in whatever way you want to do it. Uh, but before the representatives from the rental house will come out. Basically, all but one or two of your crew have to, you know, are dismissed. So there's, you know, there's somebody holding paperwork, and there's maybe one guy handling gear, and you know, if there's questions, you gotta move. It's not such a bad problem if you are a small production, if you're a commercial, or whatever. But if you're a movie or a TV show or a, you know, a big order of some kind, moving all that gear is it's a lot of work. <laughs> right. Just, yeah. Just physically, it's a lot of stuff to move. Like. <laughs> Um, so that's going to be a thing that slows you down where you can't have your whole crew with you, just a guy or two. And if you have to move, you know, 500 pieces of cable because you got to flip through it all to count it, <laughs> oh. it's like, you know, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> um, so hopefully again, you know, they're, they're doing it in a way that where your the set lighting crew can come in and do lay out the equipment and hopefully you can lay out the equipment in a way that's that you can see it all so it doesn't have to be double handled. Right. Because when the bulk of the crew go away, you're down to a representative from the rental company and a representative or two from your crew. So you want to do it in a way that's you know that's conducive to quick counting. Yeah. How about barcoding? Barcoding is a thing that some people do. I don't Love the barcode system for reasons we can get into that are not related to COVID. Um, there are also some, there's one rental company that I know of that does RFID tags on everything so they can come in with their wand and like just literally kind of walk over your gear and it counts it for you. 
And if for whatever reason now you're short and you can't find something, now you go look for that particular thing. Um, and that system is okay, but not great. <laughs> um, so there's, a, you know, there are some technological solutions perhaps to this. The RFID thing might be a thing that if it were more thoroughly implemented could reduce equipment handling. Mm. Um, but it's so, in my experience so far, I, I haven't seen that. It still comes down to boots on the ground, basically. I mean, right. I mean, at a certain point, you have to pick up the piece of cable and go one, pick up the next one and go two, pick up the next one. And go three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's something that is so obvious. But you know, previously, many people might not have considered the fact that hand, handing the equipment off is going to be a lot more grueling because you're going to have to reduce the amount of people. You have to reduce the amount of contact. So there's going to be one person who's going to be doing a lot of counting, <laughs> like you're saying. Yeah, and there's, you know, they're going to be, it's not clear to me if, I don't know that every single piece of equipment needs to be UV disinfected. Well, also, it can every piece of equipment be UV affected, um, disinfected? Are some sensitive to the UV light? Could they be damaged by it, perhaps? Not that I'm aware of. The guys at the uh, the house that has the oven that I'm aware of have put all manner of things in there, Titan tubes, laptop computers, every, you know, like the whole shoot and match of electronics and in there. And it's the UV light doesn't seem to bother any of it. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's actually heating anything up. It's just the wavelength that the virus can't survive through. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's affecting electronics. I don't think it's producing all that much heat. I don't think it's, you know, so, so far so good in terms of, yeah, you can, you can bake almost anything in a UV light oven. That's great, but I'm not sure it's 100% necessary. There are a few things where, you know, like, there are a few things where it might be, but to put every piece of 4 ought into the thing to bake, like, seems like a waste of everybody's time and effort and energy and, you know, <laughs> uh, let's, let's, you know, let's be clear. This is cable that lets lay it on the ground in God knows what all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... When it gets super muddy, we wash it. But as a rule, I don't wash the cable that goes on my truck every day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't have to eat off the things. Right, exactly. I mean, if, like I said, if it, got in, if it was a condition where it was extra dirty for whatever reason, yeah, sometimes you take it and you bring it to the power washer and, you know. But that's certainly not a daily occurrence. That's a, you know, uh, special needs occurrence. My question would be, you know, following up on, you know, we've talked about the gear, talked about testing, um, zones, practices, all that. But is there any talk of a plan if a crew member, cast member, anybody were to actually come down with the coronavirus? You know, this there might be. I'm guessing this probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing this probably not a list of day players ready to step in. No, I mean that's that's the other thing. We're trying, uh, we are trying to the extent possible to reduce day players. Um, and actually, a couple of the producers I've talked to on various jobs have been very understanding and said, "Look, uh, you know, I'd rather rather have you hire more guys on a long term basis than have to hire, you know, have to bring people in and out." And they're willing to, they understand they're going to have to spend a little more money for that. And they're, you know, they get it. They're into well, it. And, uh, and it sounds. It sounds like, you know, what you just described earlier, you know, for example, you know, when you when you return equipment and only two of the crew members can 
be help, helping with, you know, counting it and inventorying it to return it, then it seems to me you're going to need more bodies because if they're there doing that, they can't be back doing something else on set or prepping or... Yeah, so. I mean, it's definitely a new, a slightly new distribution of labor uh, in terms of getting around uh, exactly these kind of restrictions. So, yeah, a check-in that would have taken a day with a whole, you know, a day or whatever, let's say in the old times, it took a day to check in whatever amount of gear you the had with a full times. crew. Uh, now maybe it takes two days because you don't have, you know, as many bodies to flip gear or to, you know, hey, go find that thing that we can't find, you know? <laughs> go. And there's somebody who can find the thing, and meanwhile, there's another guy who can help you keep counting. Like, now, if you send somebody away to find whatever's missing, he can't be with you, you know, turning over a cable to count the next item, you know, so you gotta, it's gonna take longer. Like, it just is. Well, it, you know, it sort of comes back to the saying that we've had for a long time. If, if I'm doing your job, who's doing mine? <laughs> so, it's almost that way, you know, if 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 you have to let your crew member go, you know, you're pre-lighting to go chase down whatever item you couldn't find or missing in inventory. Uh, now you're down a guy and, and it's, you know, it, yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's always been the way, except this time, you know, you have a limited, you know, because you can't have day players, you can't say, Oh, well, tomorrow's going to be a high labor intensive day. We're going to have to bring in, you know, a half a dozen day players for the day. Well, that, you know, you're going to try to estimate that ahead of time and just sort of keep it on an even keel, which could be difficult because you don't know how many tasks they're going to need to perform with how many bodies. Yeah, I mean, again, we're going to, you know, we're guessing some. And this, like I said, maybe I didn't say it, this particular job that I'm on now is in a state where you know, they left mid-production or, you know, very late in the production. They actually only have a week or so left to shoot, plus some reshoots that they've discovered over the past five months. <laughs> uh, but so the stuff in, you know, there's stuff that's on stage that's in various states of disrepair that needs to be either struck or made to be working. Um, and there are some location rigs that need to be done. And at the moment, we're able to divide and conquer we have sort of a location crew and a stage crew and that's okay um and but again this is we're in a weird scenario here because this is you know imagine you're in the last two weeks of a show you know so it's not five months later right <laughs> yeah um so we're not we're not building something from the ground up we're, we're taking a thing that existed and it was, you know, half wrapped at, you know, in March. And now we've got to, like, make it work again and figure out what we actually need and what they, what we don't need and what we can borrow from over here because it's really done shooting to bring over here because we still need a shot in this place. And, you know, so there's a little bit of that sort of shenanigans that's going on. So Jeff talked a lot about how the culture had shifted. Obviously, people are going to be a lot more conscientious about where they're standing how close they are to others and whatnot. But have you noticed a significant change in the working culture or is it roughly the same just with new barriers? Mm, hard to say again, because we haven't been in like in proper production yet. Um, right. We have been much more separated in our work than we would normally be. 
in the past where, you know, if the grips have to go up and hang a rig for us to put lights on, uh, obviously in some ways that always, you know, the pipe had to go up before the lights went on it. There was no, like, uh, right. But in this case, we're sort of allowing them to get way further ahead than we would have in the past where it's, you know, all right, you go and you complete your work and then we as a department will go and we'll complete our work. And then, you know, whoever's uh, coming behind us will come and complete their work. And, uh, you know, in, in an attempt to reduce the number of bodies in the same space at the same time. Um, so you have to be much more strategic about how you do everything, making, making an already difficult job even more challenging. Uh, I mean, there is, you know, like, like I said, it's, it's so far it's been okay. Uh, but you do have to think a little further ahead than you might have to, might have in the past. Well, cause you don't have the luxury of, of being on set, for example, you know, if you're the lighting department while the grips are doing the rigging and then you realize, oh, well, wait a minute, we got to move that over this way, three feet, or we've got to add a, you know, a pipe between these two pieces of truss or whatever the case may be. Because now, if they go in and, you know, let's just say it's truss, hang all the truss, and you come in to go to light it, and you realize, oh, well, light's got to go here where there's no hanging point. Um, it's probably a big deal, it sounds like, to get somebody back in there to put that hanging point in so that you can continue. It's definitely a bigger deal than it used to be, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not anything. So far, everybody's been really cool, and it's, you know, everybody understands the environment we're working in. But also, again... We're not in production yet. We're still in pre-pro, and we're still, you know, we're still in rigging, and so the the pace is a little more casual than it would be if you were, you know, in production. Uh, now, also, I should say, at the moment, given what I the amount of work I think we have to do, and the time frame we have to do it in, feels pretty comfortable. It doesn't feel like we're, you know, uh, totally up against it. I can easily imagine a scenario where it's not that way. Uh, yeah. And do you think it would be helpful, you know, now currently, you know, typically there's a gaffer and a best boy. There's a key grip and a, and a best boy. Do you think there would be a need for a gaffer and more than one best boy so that you could have a best boy representing you on the different sets or at least the different stages of production that, you know, if you're doing more than one stage, it would seem to me you'd have to you should well i don't i would prefer to have someone designated on my crew you know as the gaffer uh someone designated on each set as a best boy because you can't be everywhere at once and the process of you getting to those other stages has become a little bit more complicated uh in you know in the covid days because what if there's already the the limit you're already up to the limit of number of people a lot on that set and now you want to go in, you know, now you got to get someone to come out and, you know, you have to hand wash and, you know, decamp, contaminate, you know, change your, your mask and whatever, whatever the, whatever the procedure would be just to go in there and double check on something. Yeah. I mean, that certainly is a possibility. I mean, I don't, I uh, haven't encountered that yet, but it certainly, you know, it makes sense that you it might need more people, uh, to be, well, uh, let me, uh, let me piggyback on that a little bit. So there's a, a um, another job that I was potentially going to be on that I didn't end up on, uh, where they are, they have one, two, three, four stages, I think, 
and a location. So right now what they're planning on doing is having four separate crews. You're in stage A, you're in stage B, you're in stage C, you're the location rigging crew, and you're you know, and they're trying to silo everybody so that if somebody was sick on their stage, that you all are quarantined for two weeks. But it doesn't that doesn't like shut down the whole production. It just shuts down that silo, you know. Um so that you know, sort of like what you said, I don't know there would be a there would be a pusher you know, rather than a best boy in charge of that location, but same idea where there's a, you know, a man in charge or a woman in charge of a set. And when, you know, hopefully when the first unit comes in, it's ready to shoot. It's the idea. But the idea was that they were siloing all these individual crews in individual stages. And, um, it meant a lot more guys, but it also meant that everything was sort of sealed, that there was not cross contamination as, you know, as little cross contamination as possible in terms of people. Um, and so that's one way to do it. It requires a lot more bodies. Uh, but, you know, you've got a dedicated crew. And it's also great because you have a dedicated crew that knows the set. You know, your guys who are with you know what's going on in this rig, know how to, you know, know where the bodies are buried, so to speak. And it's uh, <laughs> it's nice when you've got somebody with that level of investment that's been it really go, Oh yeah, no, I've been working on this thing for a week or two weeks or three weeks or however long. I know that that piece of DMX goes to here and there's a backup that's there. And if there's a problem with this, you know, the node or the opto splitters over here that controls that. And, you know, the, you get a much more intimate knowledge of a rig if you're working on it daily rather than if you're part of the same crew. But today you're at the stage and tomorrow you're on location. The day after that you're at another location and, you know, and so on. Well, that's always been, that's always been, for me anyway, the challenge, you know, not that I did a lot of movies, but the few times that I did and I was a day player, you know, you show up, you know where anything is, you don't know what the style is, you don't know, you know, what the gaffer prefers, what the DP, the look the DP is looking for, you're just a body. So it seemed to me, you know, having different silos or pods makes sense, except I think Maybe I'm wrong, but in my head, one one lighting director and a gaffer, so that you can have continuity through the story. Unless each silo or pod, as you call it, is set up for, you know, this is the office, this is the you know house, whatever it may be, so that you know there's really not much lighting continuity other than, well, this scene takes place and it's daylight because we just came from that shot, which was daylight, you know, not cloudy, but sunny or whatever. I don't know. I just think, because if you remember back, there was some talk about putting a crew, full crew, camera operators or DPs or whatever, you know, whatever the term may be for whatever project you're working on, along with a complete lighting crew and and rigging crew or at least a, a grip crew and that was you know they're on one set and then on the set across the way there's a whole different crew of a gaffer and lighting director and you know rinse and repeat but it seems like that's a lot of repetition that might be unnecessary so that's why i was you know wondering if you'd heard anything about doing it a different way i understand the the splitting up the silos and yes i it, it's great when you have a crew that knows like you said, uh, where all the hidden bodies are, because you don't have to try to go in there and figure out what's going on. You just ask them. 
or tell them you need this and they know exactly what to dig up to put there. Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard of any scenarios so far where people are proposing multiple first unit production crews or a first unit and a second unit or however we want to however we want to label those crews. Um, I have I have heard of like I say you know sort of siloed or potted rigging crews, and presumably those people would be around to introduce the first unit to their rig and be there you know during part of production to introduce Hand the guys. Off hand it off and, uh, you know, make sure everybody's familiar with all the parts, uh, as a rigging gaffer, that's something I try really hard to do every time I try to, you know, be really clear with the first unit guys about where all the pieces are and what I was thinking when I was building a rig that I think is helpful to them. If they can understand how I was approaching something, they might not need to ask me. They might go, Oh, well he was thinking about this. So it's probably there, you know, like, and that's how I try to do it. Um, well, that also comes, as you know, that also comes along with, you know, um, knowing the people you're working with and, you know, you knowing you're the rigging gaffer, you know, you've worked with the gaffer enough that you know what he or she likes and they know how you do things. So, you know, after a while, like, like right. You know, Some of that comes for sure with experience and with familiarity, right. you can say he's going to want an extra, you know, extra 10 K over here because he's always wants this, you know. Or he's going to want, you know, extra dim circuits in this area because that's a hero area and there's lots of, you know, or whatever. And you, you get that in, you know, you get that in your mode of working. And hopefully the, the handoff is clean enough that people know where to look for that stuff where you can say, here's the extra dimming I expect you're going to want in this scenario. Here's the extra, you know, LED, whatever, that are available because... You know, here's the extra lights of this kind that are common on set. Here's the spares. Here's the, you know, extra controllers in case the controller dies. You know, so that hopefully it's a smooth handoff. That's the point. Um, and I think the more you silo people in sets like that, it's a expensive way to do it manpower-wise. But I think it also uh, would afford a smoother handoff of, from set to set. And it seems like it could also be, you know, like you mentioned earlier, I mean, if you didn't have to shut down the whole shoot, at least you can continue on. So it seems like it would, in, in the end, it could potentially save the series or the season. Yeah, if you don't, I mean, with their, if you can't shoot set A for a while because they're, that crew is sequestered because somebody was sick or whatever, well, you still have set B and C to, you know, to punt to. Well... We've gotten a pretty good idea of how working in a professional production environment with the COVID guidelines are, at least in Georgia. Now, as a kind of final thought to leave us off on, what do you think will be the most impactful in the new normal? And by that, I mean, what aspects of the new guidelines do you think are going to persist after we are, you know, quote unquote, done with COVID and are able to return to, we'll resume normalcy. God, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, like, do you, do you think people will continue to, to try to keep their distance? Do you think some things like that will persist or? Yeah. I mean, there's some things that are, you know, not production related necessarily, but you, you wonder, you know, you wonder if handshaking ever comes back. I kind of hope it does. I like a good handshake. Maybe I'm old fashioned that way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, 
it's definitely, you know, and I'm, you learn who's okay with hugging. It's like, I don't hug everybody, but there's, you know, some people who are huggers. And that's not a thing <laughs> you can do right now. Uh, and, you know, just as, even as a casual greeting, you know. Um, right. I mean, like, you really build camaraderie with a lot of those people. I do. Uh, in terms of work practices, it's a little hard to say. I feel like the longer this goes on, the more time, you know, the more those habits get ingrained, whatever the habits are. Um, it's kind of unsettling how how much things have already been subconsciously ingrained in my mind, at least even after a couple, like you know, a few months. Like how strange just not having a mask on in public is, despite the fact that that's been the, the norm my whole life, and just the past few months it's been different. So, yeah, well, I will admit I got uh, again not production related, but I got halfway into a store the other day before I was like. Oh crap! I'm not wearing a mask. I forgot to put a mask on. <laughs> I was totally yeah. self-conscious about it. <laughs> but I think you're exactly right. Uh, it's exactly the what I was going to say is I think it depends on how long this goes on because the new people coming in that don't know what it was like before, this will be how they understand production happens. You know, it's sort of like going. You know, when back when we shot film, I don't know if you remember those days. Um, <laughs> there was a whole How could he forget. There was a whole different feel to it than when you know you started doing more video and then you know digital. But there's a there's a there's a segment of production people that don't they never did film, so they don't know what that was like. They picked it up when it was video, so their experience for production is a little bit different. Um, you know, so on and so forth. So I think you're exactly right. If this goes on for a few years. You know, these people are coming in now as production assistants or as, you know, third electrics or, you know, whatever. That's what they're going to know. You put on a mask. You, you wear a face shield. Uh, you, you don't work too closely with that clown. Uh, or, you know, and that's that's going to be ingrained and that's how production is going to be. Now, again, I'm with you. It's less personable now than it. It's sort of like. Every job you're on, you just met the crew for the first time because you can't shake their hand. You can't, you know. Yeah, it's a little weird in that way. Uh, and there's less, I mean, it's a very, you know, we're a social group of people. We tell stories for a living. We're storytellers, you know, sort of by heart in some ways. Uh, some better so than others, all. yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I like to, I especially, particularly on a big show, on a movie or a TV show or whatever, I really like to go get to know the members of the other departments, to go talk to the, you know, visual effects people and go talk to the special effects people and go talk to my grip brothers and like, just so that we're all working on the same page. You know, this is a job where when it's firing on all cylinders, it's a really, it's a beautiful thing, right? It all, it's great. But when it comes off the rails, boy, howdy, does it come off the rails, man? Like, <laughs> Oh, I can imagine. So, just as a just as a, a mode of working, I'm I'm the kind of guy who really wants to go, and I want to talk to everybody and like make sure that I understand how our department is interfacing with their department and what you know what that means. Even if we're looking, you know, days, weeks, months into the future, depending on how big the job is. Right. Hey, you know, in three weeks we're doing this big scene where, uh, you know, the special effects department needs special power, and we're going to need to. You know, we can't put our lights in a certain place because the fan will blow them over or whatever, you know. So the more you can talk about that sort of stuff ahead of time, 
the smoother it is for everybody on the day when it's time to do the work. Uh, and I, plus I enjoy talking to my friends who I make movies with. Um, and it's harder <laughs> to just like poke your head into somebody's office now and be like, Hey, what about, remember that scene that we talked about in the scout that was going to be kind of weird because of X, Y, or, you know, whatever condition, you know, what are we going to do about that? How do we fix that? How do we work together to make those problems go away? That's harder to do now. Yeah. Now it's in a text or an email. Right. Which is less personable. It's like, you know, you can, uh, you can solve in a five minute conversation, you know, a thing that will take you five emails to do, you know, Jeff knows, Brandon, maybe not so much, but like, it's, you know, talking to somebody is often the fastest way to be like, Oh no, that thing that I misunderstood because it was sort of not spelled out. And then, uh, it didn't, it wasn't clear on the one liner and, but you have a two minute conversation. You're like, Oh, this, and then that, and then this. Okay, good. Great. We're, you know, well, cause, because people have different, uh, definitions of, of words. Uh, so you read a text, you know, if 12 people read a text that could be 13 different versions well, way, of what they think it means. The, the exactly. inflection in which you say it's important too. Correct. That's as, and, that's as much and, a part of the language as the words you use. Right. And there's no inflection on words on a screen. I mean, you can, you can bold them, you can this, you can that, but it's just still not the same. Now, aside from production, you know, we're talking about the, 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 the limits of production with COVID. Um, part of the, as, as Jeff Dan knows and Brandon, well, maybe someday will know. Is important. Maybe someday. <laughs> well, as important as being on set was the time away from set that you would spend with departments and crew members. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, well, Jeff Dan, I'm sure you remember this. It used to be the one-handed rap. <laughs> yeah, I remember the one-handed rap. <laughs> you know, they'd come in, production would come in with, uh, you know, a cooler or two or three of filled with ice and beer. And you would have a beer in one hand while you were wrapping cable or whatever in the other hand, because that was the social time you had to build relationships. And, you know, then it switched to, okay, well, we can't do that because obvious reasons. Um, so, you know, Jeff, Dan and I spent a lot of time, uh, the last go round of political events. Uh, a lot of the time was in DC and, you know, what would we do after the end of the day? We, you know, you go back and you you clean up and you say, all right, well, let's go grab a bite and a, and a beer. And, you know, you talk about life and, you know, sometimes production, um, but mostly about life. And you build that relationship, which is just as important because when you're on set, it's good to know, you know, how somebody uh, lives. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's a good point. I hadn't actually considered that, but it's totally true. There's not, you know, the opportunity to like, you know, step out with your colleagues and grab beer at the end of the day is uh, limited. So I don't want to go to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, exa- exactly. And and you know, and if and if you're if you're under the uh, watchful eye of production, you, you can't go to the right. bar. Well, while you know we've lost so much, there's so many things that we lament not having anymore. You know, hopefully, we can work to reclaim some of those things, like maybe being able to post a picture of yourself, maybe with a family gathering, <laughs> without your boss actually shooting you out of a cannon. Without a mask on. Right. <laughs> well, um, I want to thank you again for coming on. It's really tough to get 
exactly what's going on in such a dynamic world that we have today. I mean, it seems like every day a new COVID guideline or breakthrough is coming out, new pieces of equipment. So thanks for coming and just giving us the lowdown of what's going on in your neck of the neighborhood. No, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. And, uh, you know, it's changing by the minute. So we all just got to be, you know, on our toes. That's all. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back in the future uh, to see how things are going down in Atlanta. And uh, hopefully we'll have something to report back up here in the Northeast, uh, some some good production news of some sort. Who knows? All right, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And thank you guys for listening. Thank you for joining us today as we dive into the people behind our beloved industry. You can find our show on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on Twitter at Real Insider News or email us questions at realinsidernews at gmail.com. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. <laughs>